Hey guys, welcome to episode 118 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. We want to thank all of our listeners for being amazing as always. We've had a lot of new supporters on Patreon and we will thank you all personally at the end of the show. And we also had some pretty heartwarming reviews. So we really appreciate all of your kind words and we can never thank you enough for the amazing things you say. And I recently put the recent reviews up on Instagram. I think I'm going to start doing that again. I think that's a good idea. We got to show some appreciation. Yes. So if you'd like to join Patreon too, you could go to patreon.com slash true crime couple and you would gain access to 59 additional episodes. And if you haven't, we would really appreciate you leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on. Okay. We this week are releasing two episodes, one for Patreon and one for our regular feed. And both of them are absolutely insane. So, John, if you thought that episode was crazy, this one is going to be a lot crazier. And it's so insane that it's going to be in two parts because there is no way that we could cover this in one part. Really? A two-parter? A two-parter. It's been a long time since we had a two-parter. It has been. But I don't want anyone to worry. You don't have to wait two weeks for the second part. We're going to release it next week. So that's three straight weeks of True Crime Couple. That's our Christmas gift to you. (laughs) Okay. So are you ready to get started? Yeah, let's do it. Behind the walls of a gated community, we have another wife found dead in a bathtub with her husband desperately trying to save her life. But it was too late for beautiful 50-year-old Michelle McNeil. She was pronounced dead hours later at the hospital. And although the medical examiner would later deem her death one of natural causes, her family would stop at nothing to prove that her husband of 30 years had been the one to murder her. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil. In some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. The sprawling 5,300-square-foot mansion with six bedrooms and four and a half bathrooms was nothing new for the McNeil family. They had been living in luxurious homes for the majority of Martin and Michelle's 30-year marriage. They'd been living at this one, located at 3058 North Mill Creek Road in Pleasant Grove, Utah, for five years. The McNeils had moved in 2002, just after the home had been built. Michelle had meticulously decorated the home using dark woods and antique furniture. She took painstaking care in making sure each room of the house was absolutely perfect. After all, Keeping up with appearances was something the McNeil family were experts at. Christy Daniels had always wanted to see inside the McNeils' home. She lived next door but had never gotten close with her neighbors. They usually kept to themselves. The house at 3058 was set a little further back than the others on the loop that was Mill Creek Road. All of their homes were beautiful. They lived in a gated community but this one seemed special. 
As Christy ran past the grand front entryway of the home, in a panic she took in the vaulted ceilings, granite countertops, gorgeous oak, built-in shelves, and the perfectly placed furniture. She had never been there before and she didn't know where to go. But then, in a juxtaposition to the beauty that surrounded her, she heard the guttural screams of Martin McNeil coming from the back of the house. She ran to the sounds and gasped at the scene in the master bathroom. Just seconds prior, Christy had been at her house chatting with another neighbor who had dropped off her children as part of the school neighborhood carpool system. When six-year-old Ada McNeil, dressed in her school uniform, knocked on her door. The little girl told her that her father needed help and that her mother was hurt. Christy began walking towards her neighbor's property with Ada behind her, but then broke into a run when she heard Martin's screams emanating from the property. I mean, that's pretty scary. I feel like no matter what, hearing like like very loud screams like that is alarming. Yeah. And just in the middle of an ordinary day, these emergencies happen and it's kind of jarring. Like you're shocked. You're almost shell-shocked as you're going through it all. And I can imagine that's how she felt. Well, at first she was probably like, is something serious even happening? And that's why she was kind of just walking to the house. But then when she heard the screams, that's when she breaks into a run. I mean, you have to think that when you have these like picturesque type of perfect suburbia towns, right? I mean, you don't think anything could be wrong in a town like that. No. and this... like, Yeah. Like, no, I'm sorry. Oh, no, it's okay. I didn't I'm mean sorry. to cut you off. No, it's okay. <laughs> I was going to say you I wouldn't... cut you off. We did it again. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, all, all I was going to say to sum that up was, you know, when people are in ta- in communities like that, you're never on guard. So when you hear a scream like that, you almost think it's like not real almost or like nothing's wrong. So interesting. Right, exactly. You feel safe, especially because this is definitely a step above middle class. You know, this is like a really nice gated community in, in Utah. That's pretty cool. Yes. So in the bathroom, Christy saw her neighbor, who she knew was a doctor, it's Martin McNeil's a doctor, hunched over the soaking bathtub that was elevated and encased in tile. So, like, you know those bathtubs that are, like, a little bit higher up because there's, like, a step up to get to them? Yeah. That's the way. It was, like, a big soaking bathtub that was kind of elevated at the center and the back wall of the bathroom. Okay. Now, he was hunched over that bathtub And in the tub was Michelle McNeil. All Christy could see was that she was wearing a long black sleeved shirt and she was naked from the waist down. The woman was curled up in the bathtub and there was stitching all over her face, which appeared to have been broken open. And subsequently, or at least she hoped, the tub was filled with bloody water. So, like, her first assumption was because the stitches broke open, she was bleeding, but she didn't know if the blood was from the stitches or something else. Okay. Martin yelled to her that he needed help. She said she would call 911, and she ran back to the house to get more help. Martin yelled after her that he had already called 911, and he just needed help getting his wife out of the tub, so he said, get someone that can help me. She heard him as she was leaving, 
um, like he needed help. And Christy knew that she couldn't be of much use because in the bathroom, it was actually a really tight space. And she knew that she wouldn't have the strength to help him safely take Michelle out of the tub. Now, Michelle McNeil weighed around 180 pounds, and it would have been difficult for her to assist Martin in taking her out in a way that was safe. Like, she would have struggled. Imagine trying to take me out of the bathtub. <laughs> anyway, start to, to make a joke about yeah. something serious. But I, I will say, though, it is weird that... I mean, think about this. Now you're walking in on a couple, right? One's in the one's in the bathtub, in bloody water with Com- stitches on her in a fetal in like somewhat of a fetal position. Yeah, completely with, incapacitated. Right, and then you have this her husband over her. So even if she was able to take this help, take her out, I would be on guard. I'm like I'm in this house now with this with this guy hovering over his wife. I'm like I would be weirded out because I don't know what's taking place. Did she fall? Yes. Is he trying to cover up the fact that maybe he just did something to her? Who knows, right? Yeah, I think it's best case scenario that she's going to get help. Yeah, I'm a witness now. Yeah. If something goes wrong, I don't know. That is not where I'd want to be. It's a pretty, it's a complicated situation. Yeah. It's shocking. You want to help your neighbors, but you also are kind of jarred by this all. I mean, if she was conscious, it would be another a whole other story. Yeah. But the fact that she's out cold like that and you don't know what's really going on here gives me the eebie-jeebies. Yeah. The heebie-jeebies. Oh, did I say it wrong? You said the EBG. Have you been saying <laughs> that your whole life? Um, Yeah. Okay. Is it really heebie-jeebies? <laughs> yes. Wow. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, now the rest of our community knows that I just messed that one up big time. Forever. Forever. For your whole life. Wow. All right. That's okay. That's not a bad mess up. All right. So heebie-jeebies. It's a, heebie-jeebies. It's the heebie-jeebies. Yes. All right. And I was saying what? Eebie-jeebies? Eebie-jeebies. What the hell is eebie? I don't know. All right. You tell us. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know what heebie Lapse is. Lapse in judgment. I don't know. It's okay. So Christy is going to run out of the house and back to her house. And at her house, she runs into another neighbor. And that's because really all the carpool kids get dropped off at her house and then people come to pick up their kids because she's at home during that time so there's another mother that's there and she basically says martin needs our help so the woman follows christy out of the house and as christy's leaving she grabs her phone and she is calling her husband once she gets her husband on the phone she yells that martin needs help And her husband, Doug Daniels, who was doing contract work at a home nearby, he comes out of the garage. So, like, it's so funny because it's such a small community. So he basically, like, kind of peeks out of a garage and he sees his wife and the female neighbor running into the McNeil house. Okay. So he follows suit and he chases after them to also go into the McNeil house to help Martin. Got the whole got the whole neighborhood. Yeah, so now there's three neighbors okay. helping. So when they reached the bathroom, Martin was clutching onto his wife's head, which was held out of the tub. So he now has her head out of the tub. Taking in the scene a second time, it was clear to Christy that Michelle was wearing a long sleeved shirt over a white Mormon undergarment and a bra. A thick mucus covered her face. 
and the substances seemed to be coming from her nose. The gashes across her hairline and eyelids were bleeding profusely. And Martin reached over into the tub and she saw him release the drain. And now at this point, Martin is drenched with water, but it was like kind of like it was pinkish because the water was bloody. Okay. This reminds me of the other case that we did with the bathtub. Yes. We were trying to prove whether or not he was innocent or not. Correct. And I'm going I'm going and I'm going to say the same thing with this as I said in the previous case that we covered. It, now there's evidence in that bathtub. Correct. It, you know what? We you know, I would not want that to go down the drain. You never know. What if that's the one thing that saves you from being uh, you know, convicted, a, a convicted right? So that's terrible. Like, yeah. do not do that. Well, especially if her now that he's holding her head out of the water, it doesn't seem as if the water needs to be drained. So at this point, though, she's still in the tub and unconscious. Correct. But she's not dead. Well, nobody knows at this point. Okay. What her what status? I mean, I'm guessing they like checked checked her pulse and stuff because you know. Yeah. That well, he's sense. a doctor. He's a doctor too, right? Yeah. So they feel comfortable with him. He's a doctor. He kind of knows. So he's going to kind of take the reins when it comes to the medical care that she's receiving until the paramedics get there. Just going to say, I feel like, especially that the husband's a doctor, you would think that there would be more attempts to get her out of the tub quickly and try to maybe perform any sort of like medical attention that she might need. Yeah. I mean, listen, she is 180 pounds. He could 100% have made more attempts to get her out of this tub. I feel like... That is... He could lift her out of that tub. I feel like that's something that's going to be called into question later, I feel like, because of his medical professionalism or whatever. A lot of things get called into question later. Gotcha. That's why there's a part two. (laughs) So when he saw Doug appear behind the other two women... He yelled for him to help him get his wife out of the tub. So Martin grabbed Michelle behind her arms, like underneath her arms, and Doug grabbed her ankles. In the pulling to get her out of the water, her shirt and undergarments rose, exposing her chest. And she was placed on the ground, and instantly a very large pool of water formed beneath her which I find very interesting in comparison to the other bathtub case that we had, because remember it was dry beneath her and that was called into question. Oh, why was it dry? Yeah. But I, if I'm not mistaken, she wasn't fully submerged. She was right. But the draining, I'm sorry, was what, what was the called draining, into question. Right. But by draining, I think and what I said was by draining that water, after some time had pa- uh, you know passes it obviously that water is going to evaporate and, and then dry she off. was pulled out after right. it was drained right like this draining had just taken place exactly so she's still wet and that's yeah. why there's water underneath her body but now a massive pool of water has formed beneath her so that kind of makes things a little bit more complicated with CPR procedures but she is now on a on a flat surface where CPR can be performed okay so Christy said that she knew how to perform CPR and offered to help give compressions if Martin would um, be the one who gives the breaths to his wife. He agreed, 
But at this point, Martin is hysterically yelling and screaming. He's just saying, oh, my God, over and over and over again. So he kind of seems really out of it. After one round of CPR, he told Christy to stop and said that he would take over compressions and the breathing. So Christy went outside to send Ada over to her house and she was going to be out there to wait for an ambulance to arrive so she could show them where to go when they got there. Back in the bathroom, after two rounds of compressions and breaths, Martin asked Doug if he could aid in the compressions. Now, at this point, the third neighbor who had gone over felt very uncomfortable and felt terrible for Michelle McNeil. So she got a towel to cover the woman up to give her like some shred of dignity and modesty because she was Mormon. Okay. So that was a nice thing that 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 woman did. uh, That's a great gesture. Yeah. So now Doug has taken over in the compressions. And now, if completed correctly, CPR is exhaustive. Doug took over the compressions and would later state that Martin's behavior was very strange that day. He kind of kept slipping in and out of different feelings and moods and attitudes. Um, He went from calmly and clinically describing what to do when it came to CPR and then going into extreme hysterics, screaming at Michelle that she should have never done this stupid surgery and like screaming at her. Was it worth it? Was it worth it? Like that's what he's yelling at his unresponsive wife. Why did you have to do this? So like he's mad at her for this taking place. Doug said it was very uncomfortable and he was trying to help this man save his wife. And it was very strange position to be in. I mean, yeah, I think it is, but I I mean, I don't want to say it's normal, but I think what you can say is because he's a doctor, right? You know, doctors have a certain way about them. What I mean by that is, you know, you ha- sometimes you have to give, you know, grave conditions to, you know, patients' families and stuff, and you have to have a very serious and cold, like, kind of exterior, and you have to be pro- a professional. So I feel like that part is what can be explained during that. I think the frustration that he might have towards his wife because of what she has done, whatever surgery um, that is. Maybe he was upset with her that she carried carried it out. Probably not the best timing, but he's probably so distraught and upset that you can kind of write that into it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think he's just slipping in and out of doctor mode. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that was the very short way of putting everything I just said, but, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't give too much, you know, thought into it yet. I just think I feel, yeah, like maybe he's just, he's angry that this is happening and he's taking it out on her. But Doug said he felt uncomfortable with like the ferocity in which he was yelling at his wife who was unresponsive. Yeah. I mean, saying it was uncomfortable. I mean, we've said it a million times on this show. I think that like everyone handles grief and, and stress and, you know, things of this nature very differently, you know? A hundred percent. So it is always hard to judge people's reactions in time of emergency and stress and whatever i mean doctors are people too and this is his wife of 30 years so yeah you're right so doug would later estimate that he and martin tried to complete about six to seven rounds of cpr the last time they did martin placed his ear to his wife's chest to try and hear if there was a heartbeat he heard nothing 
which enraged him again. I told you not to do it, he yelled as he slammed his fist aggressively down on his wife's chest. And that was very unfortunate timing because the second he pounded on his wife's chest, first, re first responders walked in. So that was the first thing police officers saw when they walked in the bathroom. Okay, that's that's a little weird. Yeah. <laughs> that that went that went uh really quickly. <laughs> went from yelling and maybe uh, a little distraught to just domestic violence. Domestic violence. Yeah. Um that is weird though. Plus, I mean, you got to think when you're doing this many uh I mean, I'm not a doctor or a nurse or anything like that, obviously. If you do anything like that, I'm sure with chest compressions, I want to think that you have to be careful because you could like break a rib and, and well, they stuff say like that. if you do it correctly, you, you do. Oh, you, even if done correctly. Yeah, because the compressions are aggressive, and think oh. about it now. If Doug and Martin have done six to seven rounds, Christy did two. I mean, she's had like ten rounds of CPR at this point. That's what I'm saying. I mean, like the last thing you want to do is be hitting her chest. Uh, in addition to in that. addition to all the compressions, yeah. yeah. Now. From this point on, first responders are going to take over CPR. And the first people that are at the scene are actually police officers. And what they have with them are those inflatable bags that are used for the mouth-to-mouth -mouth technique. And because, you know, these breaths could be considered more forceful, the reason why they use these protective bags is because it protects police officers or paramedics because most likely the patient might vomit. And that's exactly what happened here. After the second round of CPR that the officers are going to perform on Michelle while they're waiting for paramedics to get there, uh, Michelle expels three to four cups of water and a pinkish frothy substance, which is most likely from, you know, bleeding that may be happening internally. Now, this is interesting because only two to three, only two rounds into CPR they're seeing a response from Michelle. And because of their CPR that they're performing, fresh blood is gushing from the wounds that Michelle had on her forehead and eyelids from a surgery that she just had completed, which was a facelift, by the way. Um, and that's what Martin was screaming about. So okay. that might put some things into perspective for you, like put some puzzle pieces together. That's what he's screaming. I told you not to do the facelift. I told you not to do it. Okay. But now the reason why these wounds are bleeding is because, because they're performing CPR, her circulatory system is moving. So now blood is gushing from the wounds. So this is something that's going to come up later. How come when CPR was taking place um, by Martin and through Martin's instructions through the neighbors, there was no expelling of water and there was no excessive bleeding. So it was, it kind of can look like from the outside perspective, well, once CPR is being performed correctly, you're seeing a reaction from the patient versus the 10 rounds that happened previously. That's actually interesting. Um, maybe you know the answer to this, but how long did it take for paramedics to get there? They were there very quickly. They were there within seven minutes. Okay. Because I'm just thinking to myself, like, I mean, he is a doctor. He would know when someone's clinically dead or, like, when, you know, how long it would take for someone to go brain dead from lack of oxygen, right? Yeah. I mean, this person would know all those medical things. Well, the one thing that Martin wouldn't know because he wasn't home was how long Michelle had been unresponsive. 
Okay, so she was like that before he even came into the residence. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. That's true, too. So there's a lot of unknowns with this case. Okay. So when paramedics and police officers were on the scene working on Michelle, Martin kept screaming at her about the surgery. And he kept um, saying, like, why did you have to do this? Why were you being selfish? And later, upon reflection, all first responders are going to say kind of the same thing that Doug had said. They were very uncomfortable with Martin's outbursts. And there were times that he was so aggressive that and got so close to Michelle that they actually feared for their own safety, which is something that is very uncommon for paramedics and police officers when they're trying to save a loved one's life. Yeah. Like he was so aggressively angry about this. I mean, that is unfortunate because I feel like that takes away from the person who needs the attention. (laughs) Yeah. It was was like the Martin show. Yeah. So throughout the time they worked on Michelle, Martin kept storming in and out of the room. So he would either scream at Michelle's lifeless body that she shouldn't have gotten the surgery. um, And he would also yell at the paramedics to like, keep going, keep going. Or he would just be screaming, like, up at the ceiling, like, asking God why God did this to him. So finally, on the last time that he stormed back in, Martin told first responders and officers present that she had been on her knees in front of the bathtub with her head dipped down in the water when he found her. That's quite an odd position to be in. And we, and we know it's false because several other witnesses, like the three neighbors, saw her in the bathtub. Right, with her, with him picking her like her head out of the bathtub. And, and Doug had to help get her out. Right. That's the whole reason why they were there. And it was very clear that the woman had been submerged in the bathtub because her clothing was soaking wet. And there was that massive pool of water on the on the floor in the bathroom. That's a weird thing to say. Very. When you know that's not true. Yeah. And the, and you also know that within a half an hour time, well, I'm sure probably within a half an hour time period, you know people were there to help you and know where her the position of her body. Correct. So why would you do that? Very strange comment to make and. A very interesting story to now be sticking to. That's weird. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, there must be something more to this. So, well, because it's weird that she would be fully clothed from the waist up. Like, that's an odd addition to the story, too. It's like, okay, well, even if she was on her knees bending over the tub, like, say you're washing your hair that way, which she wouldn't be anyway because she's recovering from a facelift. But say she was, why would she be naked from the waist down? Like, it's just, it's all very odd. But we're going to get into the reasons why that could have taken place. Okay. Don't forget, she's on a a lot of medication post-facelift surgery. That's true. Okay. So eventually, Michelle was taken into the ambulance and brought to the hospital. She arrived at 1224 p.m. And after all efforts were exhausted in trying to save her life, Michelle was pronounced dead at 1.03 p.m., 
just an hour and 13 minutes after her husband first placed the call to 911. Okay, so now that we know kind of the gist of what happened after Michelle's body was found unresponsive in the tub, and then she was later pronounced dead in the hospital, let's get into the McNeil family and who they were. Ready to get started on this? Yeah, let's do it. It's a very interesting story. I'm ready. The McNeil family seemed to have it all from the outside looking in. The couple met at a church event in 1977 in California. The saying that opposites attract seemed to have been written for Michelle and Martin. Michelle had grown up in California, being one of seven children in what was basically a single-parent household because her father was never really present in her life due to his alcoholism. And later, the fact that he married another woman and had a separate family with her And that was kind of the family that he chose to live his life with. So Michelle and her siblings all had kind of felt abandoned by their father. But despite that sad fact, Michelle's childhood was actually a happy one. She was very close with her sisters and she loved her mother. She was raised Mormon and found a deep connection with her religion. As she got older, she refused to use drugs, smoke, or drink like all the other teenagers were doing around her because that was a part of her Mormon faith. Her goal, like every good Mormon girl, was to attend Brigham Young University when she graduated high school, and that's what she was able to do. Martin and Michelle only had two similarities in their childhood. First, their father was absent in both of their lives, and they were one of many siblings. But there, the similarities end. Everything else was the polar opposite. Martin grew up in poverty in Camden, New Jersey, which for those of you that don't know, is located in New Jersey, but is just outside of Philadelphia. Camden is bad news bears. It is not the best place to be. Um, And I have factual evidence to back this up. I'm not just saying this as anecdotal New Jerseyan like it really is it always always is ranked in the top five most dangerous cities in America for over 20 years now I think we could safely sum it up by just saying it, it's a place that you would not feel comfortable being at night or day <laughs> and it's always said you do not stop at red lights well I mean you kind of have to <laughs> no they, the police officers even tell you don't stop at red lights in Camden well, if you can go, go. Like, well, that's what people say. It beats out Detroit, Oakland, Philadelphia in the most dangerous place to be. That's pretty bad. And the square mileage is smaller, so your likelihood of being involved in a crime is more likely. <laughs> well, thank God we're not going there. Yeah. Um, we do take field trips there. <laughs> we do, really? Yeah, we do. For what? The Battleship New Jersey. Oh, that yeah. is cool, though. Yeah, but it's, we're like, get on the bus. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I digress. Martin grew up there. He was one of six. His parents divorced early on in his life. And at first, he stayed with his mother and siblings in New Jersey. He didn't have it easy. 
School was hard because he was poor and he didn't have many friends. So it's like a double whammy. At home, things were kind of the same. None of his siblings ever felt especially close to him. They, like others in the neighborhood, called him Martin the Martian because he was so eccentric. So he always had like these eccentricities when he, he was even a child. Nothing wrong with that. No, but um, it doesn't make it easy when you're a child. Right. I mean, it's a lot to overcome. You know, I no one wants to be the, uh, the, the less fortunate kid in the school. And, and the kid that stands out. Yeah. So at the age of 16, he went to Long Beach, California to live with his father. So that's what brought Martin to California. There, he lived a life of self-sufficiency because his father was in his 70s. So he kind of had to do everything on his own because his father wasn't like super involved dad because he's elderly at this point. Right. So it was around this time that Martin was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. This diagnosis was life-changing. And not because of his disorder, but because afterwards... He was obsessed with mental illness and the study of the mind. And he really is going to kind of dive into this. And he considers himself like a psychologist without going to school for it. Like that's what he always tells people. <laughs> I mean, that is a little weird. You know, what's funny though is I, I find that the people that like, how do I explain this the, the proper way? I feel like maybe he felt as if he, if he got into that kind of field where he could learn and, and study what makes your mind tick a certain way that that might be beneficial to him. In controlling his in, disorder. Correct. Exactly. I think that happens a lot when people are diagnosed with things, whether it's something physical or something mental. Kind of it's a good idea to just take the bull by the horns and learn more about it yourself. Right. Of course. I get that. Yeah. That's probably the, the doctor in him. Yeah. So this could also be because, and, you know, Martin's study of psychology, because his family has a pretty intense history with what I'm assuming is mental illnesses because of the alarmingly high number of family members in Martin's family who have either had drug problems to self-medicate or have committed suicide. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Um. From before Martin, there were he had seven family members that have committed suicide. Jeez. So it could be a, a you know a family history of what may be bipolar disorder and or depression. That's really sad though. Yeah, it's really sad. You know, a uh, quick side note: I now that we kind of know this backstory of him a little bit with having bipolar, I don't want to ever use it as like. Uh, not like I don't want to use it as an excuse ever, like solely, you know. Yeah. But like in the case of like him going from doctor mode to going to pounding his wife's chest and screaming and everything, may, could that have something to do with it too? In the moment, maybe. Well, that's kind of like a misconception with bipolar disorder. Okay. That sometimes, whenever somebody can like switch between being calm and being angry. Like, people always tend to say, like, oh, maybe they're bipolar. But that, in reality, that's not what the disorder is. It's not a switch from one second to the other. It's it's more like 
manic and depressive states that happen over someone's life. Okay, I mean, it's good to know. Yeah. I, I thank you for the enlightenment. Well, there's many different kinds yeah. of bipolar, so I'm being really general with it. But people so commonly fling out the term right. bipolar, and that's but not you necessarily know, what it means. But I know what you're saying. Yeah, but you do know that that would be something that if they got their hands on that information of him having bipolar, that that would be used as to uh, try to ex- tr- their way of trying to explain why he's having an outburst. Correct. Like, you know what I'm saying? Oh, I totally get what you're yeah. saying because later on, Martin is going to get in trouble with the law and that's the first thing he claims is that his bipolar disorder right. is the cause So of do it. you see how, like, it gets brought no, to I the totally forefront? No, I totally get it. Um, but, no, thank you for letting me know because I'm not really too, you know, privy on, you know, mental illness when, you know, in its different forms. So right. I appreciate you telling me that. You're welcome, John. That's it's what I'm here for. <laughs> Thanks. To help you... <laughs> get on through life knowing facts about mental illness i like to know everything <laughs> so after completing a school martin enlisted in the marines but there he had a lot of trouble because he clashed with his commanding officers who all stated in their documentation that he clearly had a problem with authority martin chose to leave the marines before finishing basic training but later enlisted in the army because he exhibited some of the same behaviors there his commanding officers chose to get him a psychiatric evaluation. During that evaluation, he confessed that he heard voices that urged him to kill. Now, that's a red flag. That is a red flag. Um, it's like, Martin, we know we're the army during Vietnam, but that's even a lot for us. So <laughs> that's not working out. And we're, and we're also on our second branch of military. Yes. I, I don't think he likes taking orders from people, so this might not be the career path to go down no not necessarily but around 1975 they're really taking anyone into the military they're kind of overlooking things and you know we have there are histories of this happening later on too like this happens commonly like Bo Bergdahl for example he was taken out of the Coast Guard but then he later goes into the army and same thing here the Marines said no and then he goes to the army but when you're talking about times of war or coming out of a war when military um, membership is at an all-time low because people aren't necessarily joining, especially post-Vietnam because there was not the best view of the American military and the American government. People weren't joining, so they were like, hey, we'll pretty much take anyone at this point. Yeah. So it's the time period, and that's why, you know, they allowed him to get into the army. But because he did say that he heard voices that were urging him to kill. They did do the right thing in saying, like, let's conduct further testing. So that's what they did. And through the further testing that the Army did, it was concluded that Martin was diagnosed with uh, latent schizophrenia. Okay. Now, latent schizophrenia is an old term, and this is 1975, so... That makes sense. And it's a term that's used for someone who's exhibiting signs of schizophrenia but had never shown signs of the illness in their past. That's where that latent term comes in. So because of this, Martin is discharged from the army at the age of 19. Wow. Now with schizophrenia, I mean, does that normally come out like in the early 20s or mid 20s? Or is that something that 
Well, they say that all like sometimes mental illness will mostly come out in your 20s or even early 30s. But I don't know if necessarily the the idea of Martin having schizophrenia never comes up again. And I think it might have been a misdiagnosis from the army because really the only thing his future psychiatrists are going to say is that he suffers from bipolar disorder. Okay. So maybe it was just a misdiagnosis. Yeah. I, I don't know where this is coming from and him saying, or, or like maybe he had motivations in saying he heard voices urging him to kill because it never happens again. Like these delusions or hallucinations. Maybe he just did want to get out of the army and that was his way of doing it. I don't know. We're very unclear about this, but the whole idea of schizophrenia never comes up again. The whole thing is really interesting. It's very strange, but it's what I find interesting is that when he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, then he kind of like threw himself into the study of all of these mental illnesses. So in my mind, I'm thinking, was he trying to replicate schizophrenia? Right, but then, t- and so then, what would be the goal to get out of the military? Maybe he was in it, and then he realized he wasn't liking it. But it would be easier to to be discharged like that and still receive some benefits. Maybe I don't maybe. know. Maybe yeah, because you know you got to think like what are the what are the means to an end here? Like what what would be the reason for him to go through the trouble to do that? Like what would be the end game for him there? So would it be to just get out of the military? Yeah, to be honorably discharged. Maybe, yeah. I don't. I'm not sure. See, like the motivations are very unclear. This here. guy's really interesting. Yes. It's like you know the man of mystery right now for me. Yeah. This is cool. So when Martin returned to live with his father in California, again after he was discharged, he was introduced to Mormonism by a friend. Martin went full-fledged with his study of the Mormon faith, and he got very involved with the church as quickly as he could. He went on missions with other members of the church, um, which is something that, you know, most people that are of the Mormon faith do. But because of his erratic behavior during his mission, he was asked to leave the mission early and actually had to be escorted to a plane by what I guess you could consider to be like Mormon bodyguards. Now, a Mormon out on a mission trip usually spends two years at their assigned mission, which is usually a foreign country, where they work to educate and spread their gospel to other people. Now, while there, they do volunteer and humanitarian work. And Martin only lasted two months on his mission. So, like, what I'm gathering here, right, is between the military service and the Mormon um, mission, he can't get along with anyone. There's definitely an issue here when it comes to him being around and playing well with others. 100%. This is 100%. And we're not talking like, you know, he's not a young kid here. He's 19 to early 20s at this point, right? Yeah. So you have to think, like, he's an adult, like, and he has problems with this. Now, is it because of his, you know, him being very eccentric? Um, could it be due well, to... It, well, his mental illness is being managed at this point, so... Right. He is taking medication, so it's not that. It's... Yeah. I, I think it's just him wanting to always be in control. He was explained as being a very arrogant person, 
he wanted things a specific way and if it didn't go that way he had a temper yeah just doesn't play well with others no so two years later at 21 martin is still very involved in the church of latter-day saints but he has a new scheme he caught a special on 60 minutes about a man who was forging checks and he thinks to himself i could do that better so he began forging checks from a false bank account that he created using a phony driver's license. And in total, he purchased $35,000 worth of merchandise using fake checks. Jeez. Yeah. And this is back in what, the late 70s, early 80s? Yeah, this is 1977. Okay. Right before he meets Michelle. So you got to think, $35,000 back in the 70s is a lot of money. A lot of money. So basically, he was buying goods and purchasing them with checks, and then later on, the checks would bounce. Insane. So this case took a long time to work its way through the court system, especially because Martin is trying to use his bipolar disorder as a defense. Okay. Because... um. Sometimes doctors will describe like manic episodes of bipolar disorder, like one of the traits of it being going out and purchasing a lot of things. So he was saying he did this because of his bipolar disorder. Okay. Right. So it's here that Martin's journey with 14 felonies hanging over him from this check forgery case that he meets the beautiful Michelle Summers. What a way to meet your uh, future wife. Yes. Michelle is captivated by Martin's good looks, intelligence, charm, and also by the fact that he was a Mormon. I mean, if you have, if you share a similar faith, it's easier to kind of do things together, especially when it's Mormonism because that is so tied into your lifestyle. So it just really makes things easy. Yeah. Their courtship was intense and brief. Just months after meeting each other, Martin and Michelle get married at the displeasure of her family. Michelle's family, in particular her siblings, did not like Martin. He was controlling and manipulative and dimmed their gorgeous sister's shine. He always seemed to be mentally disturbed. For example, during one fight, before they were engaged, Michelle was thinking about breaking up with Martin. They were having this conversation in his car outside of her home. Martin became so upset that Michelle brought up the idea of the couple taking a break from each other that he pulled a gun out of his center console and held it to his temple. He threatened to kill himself if Michelle ever left him. And Michelle agreed to stay with Martin and work out any issues she may have rather than them taking a break. This would not be the last time that he does something like this in their relationship. I mean, that's, uh, I mean, that's a little over the top. Well, that's a part of manipulative behavior. Yeah. Because he's manipulating her into doing what he wants to do with the threat of violence like that. Yeah, it definitely seems to be, and you're right, it seems like this guy's MO when it comes to always having control and being yeah. able to manipulate. It's kind of scary. No, it is totally scary. And, you know, we didn't have language for it back in the 1970s. But now what people would say, um, the professionals, was that this was manipulative behavior as a part of a coercive controlled relationship. And that's what this is. 
So on top of this manipulative behavior, Martin was also very arrogant to Michelle's family. He was never kind. It seemed as if he was jealous of the relationship that they had with Michelle. Because although Michelle grew up in a home with just her mother and her father was absent from the picture, she was very close with her mother and her siblings. Martin's family was not like this. And when he got into a relationship with Michelle, he didn't like that they shared her heart. You know what I'm saying? Like, Michelle loved them and loved him, and he wanted Michelle to only love him. Right. So he was never really good to them. And because Martin acted like this, they didn't fully approve of him. But on the other hand, they loved Michelle and Michelle was in love. And if they were to explain to her that they didn't like him, then they were feeding into what he was telling her, which was your family's trying to break us up. So they kind of just sat back and hoped that either things would get better or if they didn't, that Michelle would eventually leave. I mean, if you're the family, any other family member, you know, that is the best course of action to take, right? You don't want to push someone further away, especially with someone that might be a little unstable or just controlling or angry like, or, and, right. and could possibly hurt her. You know what I mean? So that's – I think that was the best move that they could have made. Yeah, And sometimes when it comes to this, especially young relationships, the more you try and pull the two apart, it brings them together. So I think yeah. that was what the family was thinking. The couple was very eager to get Martin's legal troubles out of the way. After a judge deemed that Martin could not use the insanity defense in his check forgery case, he pleaded no contest and was sentenced to six months in a federal prison. Uh, once he was released, the couple, you know, they move in together, they get a house and of course, they get now officially married. So at first, they just got married by like a justice of the peace. But then they go on to have a marriage ceremony at the LDS church. And from there, they go through a sealing ceremony. Now, I hope I get this right. If we have any Mormon listeners out there, please feel free to correct me because I you know how you can sometimes read up about what something is, but you can never truly understand the concept of it because you're not a part of it. Right, of course. So I'm going to try my best to explain what a sealing ceremony is. A sealing ceremony takes a marriage beyond death. So technically, when we die, our marriages dissolve. However, if you have a sealing ceremony, it seals you together after death. And if you remain faithful to the church, even after resurrection... And if you have children, they're brought into the seal of your marriage. Okay. Um, so this all leans towards the concept that for Mormons, marriage is sacred. And it is a prerequisite for a higher degree of being in the afterlife. So just keep that little nugget of knowledge in your mind that marriage is supposed to be sacred within the Mormon faith. I love our podcast because every episode I learn something new. Yeah. This is very cool. So throughout their relationship, they move several times. And in total, they have four children together. In order, 
their children's names are Rachel, Vanessa, Alexis, and then they finally have a son, Damien. Okay. In the midst of the birth of their four children being born, Martin was working towards his medical degree. At first, he pursued his medical degree through a program where students would attend a foreign medical school. But in order to become a doctor in the United States, they would have to pass an American medical exam. So he starts attending school in Guadalajara, Mexico. But after just one semester of work, he drops out. (laughs) And then he moves on to the College of Osteopathic Medicine of the Pacific, where he chose to study the holistic approach to the treatment of the musculoskeletal system. Say that three times as fast. It's not like... No, it's okay. I barely just got that out. I know. Guys, we had to do that three times. (laughs) That's actually funny. Okay, wait. So he is not to write off holistic medicine, but he's a holistic doctor. Well, that's what he went in to study. And it's definitely something that he found interesting, but he is going to eventually become an osteopathic surgeon. But before he has his patients go the direction of surgery, he first takes them down a holistic journey. Okay. I got it. Okay. That, no, that clears things up. Yes. Okay. So Martin becomes an osteopathic surgeon and he completed his residency in Queens. Really? Yes. Hometown. Yes. Well, home. Home borough. Yeah. So once he completed his residency... He and Michelle, who were still devout followers of Mormonism, chose to move to Utah with their large family. So that makes sense because then they're going to be close to the church. At this point, the beautiful McNeil family are the picturesque Mormon family. Michelle was a beautiful and faith-filled homemaker, and her husband was a doctor. And together they had four well-mannered children. But behind the facade, there were some cracks in the foundation. Within the LDS community in Utah, it was known that Martin could be eccentric. And they keep using this word to describe Martin, eccentric. And I really just mean he was, was, seemed to be like a raging lunatic at times. (laughs) But they call him eccentric. Well, that's the nice way of putting it. Yes. He was known to cause scenes at events. But a lot of this was kept under wraps because... He had taken on some pretty serious leadership roles within the church. And this is something that higher members in the church were happy about because Martin McNeil was a doctor. He was a well-respected member of the community and him being in high positions in the church was, it was very influential and everyone wants a doctor to be a part of their church because, you know, people just think so highly of doctors. So they overlook other things that he was doing. Well, yeah, they're putting him up on a pedestal. But the problem is is that the guy doesn't seem like he could get along with anyone. Once again, this is another instance in which he makes scenes at gatherings and events. I just, it's a trend that has been constant since he's 19 years old. Yeah. Like, he doesn't seem to have a filter. And even when um, there are a lot of people around, like, he doesn't seem to care. Yeah. So... At home, Martin was also extremely controlling. He was controlling of his wife and his children. The McNeil household, the phrase appearances are everything, meant everything. 
Michelle and the four children were always expected to look and act a certain way, especially outside of the home. Like one of the rules also was that wherever they lived, and they did move quite often, their last home they were at for the longest, which was five years, Michelle like had to ask permission to be friends or talk to the neighbors. Nah, see, that's not that's not good. That is no, that is not good. I mean, it should never ever be that way, ever. That's a red flag. I mean, I think there's a lot of other red flags along the way yeah. that I did not put down into the ground, but yeah, this is one of them. <laughs> So in 1990, Martin graduated from a law school, which only further elevated his career. However, his personal life was starting to get complicated. In 1996, he was accused of having a sexual relationship with a patient at the BYU Health Center. And when Michelle confronted him about this, he threatened to commit suicide. At this point, Michelle's family knew that she was struggling. And she could use some help. And not just because her marriage was in trouble, but also with the kids. I mean, she was a single mother with four kids. It's, it's a lot. So Michelle's family is going to make the move to Utah as well, which is something that made sense because they were also members of the LDS church. Martin was not happy about this. He had liked the fact that they didn't live in the same state as Michelle's family. And then here they are. Yeah. Well, because it's just a, another obstacle now that he has to work through to maintain control of Correct. his wife. Right. And they say that, like, sometimes, like, a, like domestic abusers, it's one thing they do is they, like, isolate the person they're in a relationship with. And it's going to be hard to isolate Michelle when her family's living in the same town. Right. So after a few months of Michelle's family being in Utah and countless family events, Martin made a startling accusation. He claimed that one of Michelle's family members had molested Damien. And because of that, he would no longer allow his children to be around Michelle's extended family, meaning her aunts, uncles, and cousins. So we don't know if there's any truth to these accusations, so I'm just going to leave that aspect of the case here and really not take it any further. Because both ways... It's terrible. It's terrible if it's true, and it's terrible if it's, if it's a fabrication. But we don't know, so we're going to not speak on it. So now the McNeils only speak to Michelle's immediate family, her siblings and her parents. But every time they would get together, Martin would get upset by something that was done or said, and every family event ended with Martin storming into wherever his children were playing with their cousins and saying, get your things, we're leaving, and him storming out. So basically every family event was plagued by a dramatic exit from Martin with his kids in tow and Michelle apologizing as she left. That is so embarrassing. Yeah. And eventually all of these visits dwindled down to just occasional phone calls. So it's really sad because they were really close as a family. So it's difficult. It is. Seeing Martin's outbursts are fascinating through the eyes of his daughters. At first, they, like every little girl, just want to impress their father and make him happy. He was their hero. But as they got older, they grew embarrassed by his outbursts. 
but still they loved him so much. It was their father. So they made excuses for him, saying he was an eccentric man, this term that we keep hearing over and over again, but he was really sweet. He could just be aggressive at times. But as they aged, they kind of began to see their father's problematic behavior for what it was. Martin also never seemed to stay at the same medical practice for too long. And he never really had an answer for why he would leave, which bothered Michelle and made her think back to the accusations made against him in 1996 at BYU. In reality, he had to leave many medical facilities due to allegations of sexual assaults, misconduct, and misdiagnoses. And all this took place while they were in Utah. Yes. That's crazy. I mean, you would think, though, that, like, uh, at some point, though, the hammer would come down on him. Well, I mean, one bad thing that happened was he was actually banned from billing Medicaid for 12 years because he was found guilty of billing them for services that he never performed. Oh, kind of like forging checks and getting $35,000 in in, uh, goods? Yeah, once a criminal, always a criminal. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, this is what I've been teaching my whole life. History repeats itself. Yeah, no, it's true. So he was also caught by Michelle several times watching pornography. Now, in the Mormon faith, pornography is forbidden. And Michelle found this as a betrayal to their marriage. It seemed that every few years there would be a blowout regarding Martin and his viewing of porn. But the worst of these fights came in 2000, when Michelle had found that Martin was viewing porn on his computer. She confronted him. The fight escalated, as it always did. But when Michelle gave Martin an indication that she might want to take a break from their marriage because this was not the first time he had done this and take the children elsewhere, maybe with her family, Martin resorted to threats of suicide. However, this time was a little different because he included violence against her into the scenario. He grabbed a butcher knife from the kitchen and began waving it wildly around, and he was threatening to kill Michelle and then himself. This was a very serious domestic violence episode. And now at this point, the youngest child, Damien, was 15 years old. And to stop his father from hurting his mother, Damien lunged at his father and took him down to the ground and managed to get the knife out of his hand. As you can imagine, this caused a massive commotion. And because so much yelling and screaming was coming from the house, a neighbor called the police. Well, I mean, that's good. Yeah. At least you know you have neighbors that are like right there to protect you. Right. When the neighbor arrived, Michelle said that she didn't want to press charges against her husband and that it was all a misunderstanding. I'm sorry. You said neighbor when the neighbor arrived. Oh, the when the police arrived. I'm sorry. Thank you, John. No problem. Always looking out for me. (laughs) Um, Michelle didn't want to press charges. It was a misunderstanding, but the police did file a police report. So that was something that was in the records in Utah. But at that point, they weren't living in Pleasant Grove. It's right before they moved there. Martin actually had to be placed on a temporary psychiatric hold 
at a mental health facility for 48 hours because he displayed, you know, suicidal thoughts and homicidal thoughts as well. So when he came back home, he told Michelle that he was going to change like every time before and after (laughs) and she believed him. Yeah. I mean, I almost feel like she was conditioned to. Yes. You know, so that's really sad. Now, at this point in 2001, the McNeil children were having some difficulties. Now, I feel, and this is just totally my opinion here, that the reason for this was their upbringing in a suppressive and abusive household combined with some inherited traits and mental illness that they inherited from their father, their father's family. Uh, Rachel, who had also been diagnosed as bipolar, had by 2001 been married twice. Um, Both marriages ended in divorce and she was living by herself in an apartment nearby her parents' home. And she was working, though, as a dental hygienist. And she, just like her father, was, was taking medication for their bipolar disorder. But this is a um, inherited um, mental illness. So it is something that we see in, in other children as well. Vanessa had dealt with severe anxiety and to cope had begun using drugs. Now, in 2001, she discovered, well, in 2000, she discovered she was pregnant. And in 2001, she gave birth to her daughter, Ada. Okay. So remember from the beginning of the story, Ada was the six-year-old that ran to the neighbor's house? Yes. Martin and Michelle knew that Vanessa couldn't handle being a mother at that point. So they had adopted Ada and raised her as their own. Oh, wow. Yes. So that's why at 50, they had a six-year-old child. That's really their granddaughter. That's insane. But she calls them mom and dad. And does she know that that's not her mom, though? Uh, That I'm not 100% certain on. Okay, okay. I mean, I would imagine probably not then. Maybe. I don't know. Vanessa's drug abuse after she gave birth to Ida kind of spiraled out of control and despite Michelle managing to convince her daughter to enter treatment facilities um, she relapsed after each attempt and because eventually she had moved on to heroin use that's sad it's very sad Um, Martin excluded Vanessa from all family functions and called her an embarrassment which is terribly sad um And I think that that might answer your question that I'm assuming they didn't tell Ida that like that's your mom because Martin seems to be embarrassed. He's embarrassed by anything that doesn't, you know, fall into his standards and and the picturesque life that he wants to put on for the world. That he wants to portray for everyone, Mm -hmm. which is so ironic because he's the one (laughs) he's the one that gets the cops called on him because they hear yelling and screaming from his house. But that should what that's not embarrassing. I don't know, it, and this guy gets called out, you know, he can't stay anywhere, can't be at functions, the military, um, um, places to learn medical stuff in Mexico, um, <laughs> it goes on and on and on, so uh, he, um, talk about embarrassment. He might be the problem. Yeah, maybe he is the problem. Yeah, maybe you are the problem. Unfortunately, when Michelle died, Vanessa had been sober for some time, and she was really doing a good job. 
building her life back up, but her mother's death would shatter her again. So that's really unfortunate. Yeah, it's really. I hate really to see bad. that when someone gets clean and they're okay, and then something very dramatic happens or traumatizing happens, and then they kind of slip up. Yeah, it's always very really sad. Bad. Yeah. So Alexis, their third daughter, received her undergraduate degree from BYU, like her mom, and went on to medical school, like her father. Um, she went to medical school in London, England, and Nevada, which are t- two total opposite places. It's pretty cool, though. Um, yes. But at the time of Michelle's death, she was enrolled in medical school in and living in Nevada. She had always remained close to her parents. Upon later reflection, Alexis said that she wanted to impress her parents, especially her father, and that her mother was more like her best friend. Damien, like Rachel, was also diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and he unfortunately suffered from debilitating bouts of depression. Damien was the only boy and youngest son, so his parents doted on him, and he worked really hard to manage his mental illness. But through his bipolar disorder, his lows were just very low. He would go on to do his Mormon missionary work in Hiroshima, Japan, which he was very excited about. He was very into his faith. And he later enrolled at Utah Valley University. And his dream was to eventually become a lawyer. All four of their children at this point are out of the house. Michelle and Martin seemed to get close through the raising of Ida, but their house was empty. They're used to four kids being in the house. So that's kind of shocking, especially because they live in these large mansions. Michelle had undergone a hysterectomy earlier that year, and she was really feeling the reality of that empty nest syndrome coupled with the realization that she could never have children again. And although she was older, I mean, they always say this, like when women get to that point where they know they can't have children anymore, they get that like one last, like, oh, should we have another one? Like that happens sometimes. Yeah. Because it's the realization that you won't be able to kind of makes you want to. So because of all of these things and their dedication to goodwill, Michelle and Martin made the decision to adopt three more children. Three? Three. Uh, you know what? I was going to say, though, too. I, I didn't want to cut you off. No. But I, I'm going to say it now. <laughs> it's probably all the realization that she would have to be alone with him 24-7. <laughs> so, yeah, seriously. I mean, that, that might be another thing as well. Yeah, I think it could go like two ways. Like it's either Michelle wants to continue being a good mother because that's like where her identity lies or Martin could want to just keep up this facade and then here it is. And like, you know, clearly Martin's got his own stuff going on and we'll kind of get into that later. And maybe he wanted the children in the house to occupy Michelle so he can keep doing whatever he's doing. It's very possible. Now. John, you've been learning a lot this episode. I have. How familiar are you with adoption trends of the early 2000s? Adoption trends? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'd be lying if I said I didn't do anything. 
okay. mean, no, not at all. I mean, no. <laughs> Good. Okay. Well, in the early 2000s, many Americans were adopting children from the Ukraine. Okay. This was a big thing that was happening. And most likely the um, reason for the plot of the movie Orphan, which is still one of my favorite horror movies. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's what I was thinking the whole time I was researching this case. I was like, ooh, is this going to take a dramatic turn, orphan turn? So most people were adopting from Ukraine because of three things. The wait time was incredibly shorter than any other country. It was less expensive. And the conditions that the children were kept in were heartbreaking. Okay. Yeah, they had to do chores. They had to wear uniforms. They were only allowed to bathe once a week. And these are the nicer facilities. And some of them, the, the children were completely malnourished and, and sometimes beaten. So it's almost like you feel, you know, you want to take a child out of that situation. Yeah. So the McNeils hired a translator and visited orphanages in the Ukraine. To be adopted by Americans, a child from the Ukraine had to be five years or older unless they had special needs. So bearing this in mind, the McNeils chose three girls from two separate orphanages. In 2003, 13-year-old Noelle, 12-year-old Giselle, and 10-year-old Elle joined the family with two-year-old Ida. Okay. Michelle was obsessed with giving the girls everything they could ever want. She enrolled them in school and ballet classes and called them her princesses. The youngest, Elle, had the smoothest adjustment, but the older two girls had trouble. It had been very hard for Giselle to learn English, and she wasn't doing well in school. But Noelle, the oldest, had the hardest time adapting to life in America and with the McNeils. So they sent her to a treatment facility in Michigan for children who suffer from reactive attachment disorder, which I'm sure you remember from the heartbreaking episode that we did on Candace Newmaker. Remember the girl yes. that was adopted and she had to go through that? Yes, and, and it was the... the suffocating. Uh, pretty much a suffocation within the mattress with a blanket yes. or something. Oh, man, that really broke. Yeah, that broke my heart. That was bad. That was I, I the actually, closest John ever came to crying. Yes, yeah. it was. Because to me, there's nothing There's nothing worse than this innocent child just going through whatever she's going through. And maybe that should, they'll be fine with some time that passes, you know. But to do this, like, therapy and just, like, blindly believe in something that there's no scientific, uh, you know. Backing to it. Backing to it, that it works. That That's horrible. And this kid dies because of it. Like, I don't know. It just really got to me. And I really, it was bad. Even even now, like it actually, for whatever reason, it bothers me. So but that's what this girl went horrible. to a treatment facility for. But she was, listen, you're pulling a 13-year-old from the Ukraine. You're bringing them to Utah. You're trying to indoctrinate them into the LDS church. You're um, forcing them to go to ballet classes. You're telling them to be involved in this family. You know the rigid rules already involved in the McNeil household and the expectations she has to live up to. And it's hard. She's 13. A 13 year old girl from America would have a difficult time doing that. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to, there's too many ex, uh, expectations. Um, and 
if she barely is she's if she's having a hard time learning english i mean that's even worse there's also a language barrier that you have to try to break through so i mean this is insane it is and for those of you that don't know what we're talking about when we talk about the candace newmaker episode um or what reactive attachment disorder is it's a rare condition where a child lacks any attachment to their parents or guardians it has been um disregarded by present day psychologists and psychiatrists to say that it was just ludicrous the treatments that the um that children had to go through in the 1990s and early 2000s which is in my opinion it's fast money grab yeah because it's a very (laughs) rare thing and a lot of adopted children had to go through these bizarre therapy sessions that really had no basis in fact yeah or you know they were never tried out. There was never any studies done on them. It was just kind of, like you said, a money grab. Well, because the facility in Michigan said the treatments weren't working, the McNeils decided to dissolve the adoption. And send her back? No. Because they dissolved the adoption and she was now a United States citizen, Noel became a ward of the state of Michigan, and she was now in in the American foster system. And that she would be in there till she's eighteen. Yeah. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. How that is so messed up. Like, okay, just side note here, really quickly. Yes, I understand that, like, what we provide in the States is probably better than Ukraine, meaning the facility that she's being housed in for, uh, or whatever, um, you know, orphanage here in the United States is probably better than an orphanage there. But does it matter? You know? Now, yeah. And she maybe had no it family. is. It depends. Now, she, now she's in a foreign land mm-hmm. that she doesn't know, and, she's ha- and she has a language barrier, like I said earlier. Like, and now she's alone. Yes. She's more alone than she's ever been. Oh, they are... St- oh, How messed up is that? That shouldn't even be allowed to take place. I know. Well, John, it gets even crazier. Oh, no, don't tell but me that. before we get there, we're going to take a break. I'm going to let you calm down a little bit. Okay. Okay. So where we left off, Noelle has been put back into the American foster system because even though she's a Ukrainian national, because... Things didn't work out for the McNeils after they put her into a treatment facility. Right. So she wasn't what they wanted. So they thought that they could try to change her. And then when they couldn't, they they discarded her. Mm -hmm. Now, months after the adoption with Noelle ended, the McNeils allowed Elle, remember she was the youngest child, to have a friend visit for a month. The girl, whose name is Sabrina had been at the same orphanage as Elle in the Ukraine. Sabrina, who was 10, had a five-year-old sister who was adopted by a family in New York. The McNeils loved Sabrina and thought she was a very sweet girl when she stayed for her month-long visit. She told them that she felt like her adopted family did not want her but adopted her because they didn't want to make her younger sister unhappy, but it was really only the sister they wanted, and they only treat the sister well. Okay. So the McNeils suggest that they should adopt Sabrina. 
this is see it's becoming a game like like the two mm-hmm. of them are like, oh, let's probably, you know, dress up the dolls. And they're treating these girls like they're dolls or, yeah. or like dogs that they could dress and carry them around. And this family bags. in New York the same way. Yeah. Because um, they suggest, oh, come live with Elle. And Sabrina agreed that she wanted to do that because she was friendly with Elle. And her sister was happy with the New York family. So the McNeils reached out to the family in New York who agreed to this. They go, yes, you can adopt her. Like, how, how like, messed up is this all? It's literally like they're trading, like, sports cards. It's, it's so it's, sick. It's, it's unbelievable. So now Sabrina is going, she lives with the McNeils. They finalized. And, and how did they, ele- how did the American foster system adoption agencies allow this to go down? They just gave their one daughter away who it didn't work out with and now they're just al- allowed to pick one up like it's a, what it doesn't make any sense so now sabrina lives with them so now it's giselle l sabrina and they have ida there but that's their granddaughter slash daughter so sabrina like l is going to thrive in utah so now the mcneils were again the shining example of wealthy and giving Mormon family in Utah. And Martin thrives on this. Like he likes looking like he is the example for everyone to follow. And Michelle really just loved being a mother. So she was busy with the girls, making them happy, buying them whatever they wanted. And that allowed Martin, like afforded him time for him to do what he ever he wanted to do on the side. That's crazy. Now I wonder what he's doing on the side. Well, oh well, that's part two. Oh man! Yeah. All right, all right. Sorry, buddy. In her reflection about her life with the McNeils, Giselle, who's now the oldest once Noel left, said that when Sabrina was brought into the picture, everything changed. And when Noel left, Ellen, Sabrina were perfect for the McNeils. They loved ballet. They got straight A's, and they wanted to be a part of the Mormon faith. But because she struggled in school, didn't like ballet, and didn't want to convert to Mormonism, she became the problem child. She claimed that there were incidents where Martin touched her in a lot of inappropriate places when he was alone with her. She would often go back up to her room and hide when this happened. So she implied that it happened more than one time. She said that she had tried to tell Michelle about this, but that Michelle brushed it off. And according to Giselle, because I don't want to speak negatively about Michelle because she's not, she never was able to defend herself or what took place in the household. But um, according to Giselle, she said something along the lines of Martin is under pressure right now and she should kind of just forget about it. Now, a family friend would later say that Michelle and Martin we're never really happy with Giselle because she didn't keep her mouth shut. Like she told people outside the house, there's rules in the house. We need permission to talk to people. Um, Martin has a temper. Whereas all the other children, including the four children of their own, know to keep their mouths shut. Right. Because it threatens their image. Correct. And that's the issue. 
Yeah. And that's why they were never happy with her. So great. Now they're treating this poor girl now like. The out, the I, outcast. Yeah. And now, and now if these allegations are correct, if they're, if they really are true, I mean that, I mean, this is horrible. What a life this child has had to live through. Yeah. And be a part of is, is it's unthinkable. It's terrible. And knowing what you will learn about Martin, you may feel that she may be telling the truth. Yeah. Okay. So this brings us to 2007. Michelle and Martin have both turned 50. Michelle had confided in her daughter, Alexis, that she believed that her father was having an affair. Martin had began running and had lost a lot of weight. He also began to go tanning. So Michelle thought that maybe he was going through a midlife crisis and was potentially trying to make himself look good for somebody else. She also said that Martin was getting into shape and taking care of himself, so that made her think that she needed to start making herself look better as well. Michelle, who was still beautiful at 50 years old, thought that maybe some plastic surgery would make her feel like her younger self again. So she told Alexis that she was planning to get a facelift. Alexis told her mother that she didn't need the surgery, but that if she wanted to get it, that she would stay with her while she was recovering. And, you know, also to help with the four girls living in the house, because Michelle was really a mother to 16-year-old Giselle, 15-year-old Sabrina, and 14-year-old Elle, and 6-year-old Ida. So, like, there was a lot of work to do. So that's why Alexis was going to help. The surgery was scheduled on April 3, 2007. The nine-hour procedure was done at Lakeview Hospital. Michelle only had to stay at the hospital for one night. She came home with her daughter and husband. Martin, of course, had many things going on with work, so it was very helpful that Alexis was there to help take care of the children. Her daughter, who was in medical school, remembered thinking that it was odd that her father asked her mother's doctor to prescribe Percocet and Valium on top of the prescriptions that he already gave her, which were hydrocodone, promethazine, and Ambien. I mean, that's a lot of, like, some hardcore, like, uh, painkillers. Yes. Now, they were all, like, prescribed in, like, smaller doses, but it it was, it's a lot for the combination. That's what Alexis thought. Yeah, plus, I mean, an Ambien, I believe, is, like, a sleep aid, so. Yes, and it can, has very bizarre side effects. And on yeah. top of the other medication, it's a little strange. Weird. So she thought it was a lot of medication that her mother may not need. Alexis left the large house in Pleasant Grove on the 10th of April after being there for an entire week. And she spoke to her mother last on the day that she died. Michelle thanked her daughter for all her help and let her know that she was still healing, but everything was going well. She also mentioned that she was excited because Martin was being so sweet to her. She said, your father's helping so much. He's being so sweet to me. And she seemed really happy, like like he was happy with her again, which is ter- terrible. That's the day she died. 
That is. So that was why Alexis felt comfortable enough to put her phone on silent mode and go to class and follow that up with some studying. When she finally checked her phone again, she saw that she had 20 missed calls from her father. She called him back in a panic, and when she finally got him on the phone, he told her to come home and then hung up. Martin had made the call to all of his children, telling them to come home once the paramedics arrived at their home within the gated community. So remember that time when he was pacing back and forth in the room while the paramedics were working and he was outside and then he would come back in and yell and go back out? When he was leaving the room, he was calling all of his children. So that's what was happening. Okay. There was one more call that I want to talk about before we put an end to episode one. And that's the 911 call. So we do have the 911 call that occurred on the day of Michelle's death. They ha- it has been made available in its entirety. There's actually two calls that take place because Martin hangs up and the operator calls back. So I'm going to play them. Now, if 911 calls are not something you're into, what you can do is fast forward two minutes because the call is about a minute and 50 seconds. So I'm going to play them and then we will talk about them after. We have a I've heard that that 911 call a few times. So what are your initial thoughts? He does sound pretty distraught. I will tell I will tell you that. Angry too. Like you hear the anger. And I don't know if that's frustration with the operator or it's his temper, but like he's very He doesn't seem flustered. He seems angry. He does seem angry. And I think, see, you picked up on that, and that's really interesting because I think when he is, when 
she, when he says I'm a physician, I'm doing CPR. She oh she goes, do you know how? I almost think that once that was said, it got oh his arrogance took his, over. Yes, it got even worse. He was like, yeah. He was like, yeah, I'm a physician. Well, what I think is most telling about this call, and not telling, but damning, is he made it a point to tell the paramedics that when he found her, she was on her knees outside of the tub and her head was in the tub, like leaning over, and that's how he found her. If that were the case... It doesn't make sense that in the 911 call he's saying she was submerged. Right. And then that he had to let the water out. He had to let the water out. And that if that were the case, he's telling them she's underwater, she's underwater. Well, then just lift her head out if she was really on her knees outside of the tub. Right. And then she could have been brought to the floor way quicker and CPR probably could have been performed faster. Yeah. And I know in the moment. Like, let's just say devil's advocate here in the moment. It's like it's crazy to explain what's happening because you're crazy, like you're going crazy. But it's what's the worst part of the 911 call is that it's contradicting the story that he tells later. So I think it's very difficult to judge someone's demeanor on a 911 call or even like assume what's going on when we have no clue what's going on. But I do have to say it totally contradicts his later story, which is why the 911 call is going to be brought up later on in the case. Yeah. And also, I mean, he hung up. If I'm not mistaken, it sounded like he hung up twice. Yeah, he did. He hung up on them twice. I mean, he could have stayed on the phone. It seemed he was very frustrated with that 911 operator. Yep. Who didn't necessarily do anything. They the. Both phone calls only lasted a minute and 50 seconds combined. Yeah, I mean, they're There's just trying nothing to, to get frustrated. Yeah, about. they're just trying to make sure that he can he can do CPR that, you know, that she's not underwater and just trying to get an ambulance to the house. Right. I mean, that's I mean, she didn't do anything wrong cuz we've listened to 911 calls where the operators are so insanely annoying. It can be frustrating. <laughs> and it's just very frustrating. Listen, it's a difficult job. I would not want it. No. But there are um, times where you do understand some frustrations and not because the operators are necessarily doing anything wrong, but you just need someone there. So you feel like, oh, this is urgent. This is urgent where they may have dispatched someone, but the person on the other side of the line doesn't realize that yet. So they get frustrated with the questions. Like, I understand that happens, but this woman made it very clear people are coming. She's just trying to get more information because they need to bring things with them that can save your wife's life. So answer her questions. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we'll get into the 911 call more in part two when it comes up. But I don't want to give too much away. No, don't. So after Michelle is pronounced dead, Martin is going to speak to detectives. He's asked to account for his day and the discovery of his wife's body. He said that he went to breakfast where he received an award from a safety group, ironically. And then he left work early to pick up his daughter from kindergarten because his wife could not. So he says he picks up his daughter and they go straight home. 
Unfortunately, it was Ida who found Michelle's body first. She was excited to see her mother, who she knew was healing, so she ran into the back bedroom, and when she couldn't find her, she went into the bathroom, and then Ida was the one who ran out and told Martin that mom needs help. So he went in there, found her, and then that's when the the call took place. What I also found interesting was on the call, he was saying, I'm doing CPR, but that's not true because that call took place before the neighbors got there and Doug had to help him get her out of the water. Oh, wow. That's a good point. I forgot about that. I I didn't think about it either. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Almost like he wanted her to die. Is that a red flag? I'm I'm putting it in the ground. (laughs) So... When the police talk to six-year-old Ida and the neighbors that were there, they all said that Michelle had been fully submerged in the tub, that her head was near the faucet, and she was fully clothed from the waist up. And, you know, they felt like Martin was lying about the fact that, well, he was lying about the fact that she wasn't fully submerged in the tub, because that's what he says to them, that when he found her, She was on her knees in front of the bathtub and her head was slumped in the water and he suggested to investigators that maybe she had taken too many pills or a bad combination of pills. So they're like, this guy's lying because everyone else is telling a different story. Everyone else's story is corroborated except for Martin's. So the police knew he was lying. What they didn't know is how much he was lying about. Okay. And that we will get into. In part two, when we discuss the investigation and all the twists and turns that this case has to offer. And that episode will be out next week. But before we end, I just want to say thank you to some new Patreon supporters that we have. So we want to thank you for joining and we hope you're enjoying the extra episodes. So we want to thank Ivy Jewell, Nancy Sears, Caitlin Blackwell, Lika pledged for a whole year, so thank you so much for that. Molly Alt, Emily Solmay upped her pledge. Lisa Hobson, Liz, Nicole Senador, Nicole Skenador. There we go. I hope that's better, Nicole. Sierra Davis, Eloisa, and Eloisa was so sweet because she shared that she was supporting. So thank you, Eloisa, and Anna C. Brooks. So thank you guys so much for everything that you're doing for us. We really appreciate it. And we'll be back next week. And that'll be on the Sunday after Christmas. So for those of you that celebrate Christmas, Merry Christmas. Yes, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays, guys. All right. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.